Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Blood. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. I'm happy to welcome Seamus Mullen to the show. Seamus is an award-winning chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. Today we talk about the emotional components to food, deciding what is right for you, and how making a few small decisions can cascade into many large results. Seamus Mullen, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thanks, brother. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. I haven't seen you. I mean, it's been a long time. It's been a long, much longer than just like the average, like, hey, we haven't seen each other in a year because of the pandemic. it's been like 12 years, I think. Yeah. (laughs) And correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time I saw you, were we eating secret Japanese beef on Pico? Yep. Yeah, that was fun. remember that place? Yeah. Is it still around? I think so. That was amazing. I don't know because there's been a lot of restaurant shakeups yeah. in the last year, but I, I would think if a place was going to survive, that place yeah. would survive. It's sort of built to be underground from, from yeah ground, ground zero. I mean, now that I picture it, I'm actually a little like we probably could have been eating there every night yeah. this <laughs> over the past year. year yeah, 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 um, which would have been fun. I love. Uh, I'm super interested in food, mm-hmm. obviously, and I've had. Um, different versions of interest in food Mm -hmm. where I'm uh, trying to have some connection with it because I'm withholding it so Mm -hmm. ferociously. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I also love now preparing stuff and trying to make it tasty Mm -hmm. and still fit my plan, which is not always the easiest. And so you are a chef who seems to be also very interested in health. Mm-hmm. Very much so, yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, I you know, I had uh, my own journey with illness, which is very different from yours, but there are a lot of parallels. Sure. Um, and I've had, I've had, which I think a lot of people can relate to, I've had a very antagonistic relationship with food for years, even though as a chef, I, I love food and I love preparing food for other folks. Um, I didn't really understand until really 10 years ago until I was super, super sick, the correlation between what I ate and how I felt. I sort of, I I academically understood it, but I didn't really know what it meant to eat for well-being. And I always thought of the idea of of healthy food and delicious food being completely um, uh, polar opposites, that you couldn't actually eat for health and eat delicious food at the same time. And if you think about like the foods that you and I grew up with, when we were talking about health food, you know, it's like cardboard and 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 sawdust, tempeh yeah. and brown rice. It's not exactly like the stuff that you're you're craving. No. And I, you know, I, I I got into this industry as a professional cook because I loved providing food for other people. I loved the joy. I mean, we were just talking about eating at that place in Pico. Think about like the nostalgia that's baked into that, the emotion, all the things that are that are that come along with a great food experience. Um, 
And to be the facilitator of that was something I learned pretty early on that I could get really a lot of positive feedback for. Yeah. You know, cooking, I grew up in a small family and on a small farm in Vermont. And we had chores, my brother and I had chores hauling water. And part of the reason why my legs are so freaking massive is because I was hauling water from age five. And, uh, and cooking was just another one of those chores. Um, so I, I, I saw early on that if I was able to make something that was really tasty, that I got a lot of positive feedback. And I was looking for that as a kid. I think kids are all looking for that. Yeah. Um, and I went into this, it went into this crazy career where it became pretty clear that we're all really good at taking care of other people, but really shitty at taking care of ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about the, the, all the stereotypes of a chef and you've got lots of friends who are chefs, so you've seen it. It's a hard driving, driving lifestyle. You know, you're working all the time. Dude, they're like the, it, it, it you know, it's as close. Like I think about certain professions and I think like rock stars have, and, and like granted when you're like a super famous wealthy rock star, I'm sure it gets easier. And sure. Plane yeah. and whatever. But like, there's a lifestyle that's associated with that stand up comedians. Yeah. There's a lifestyle associated with that. Chefs is very much in the same vein. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes if it's their hours or what it is because they're working typically much later than quote unquote normal business hours. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think tough it, dudes. Yeah, I, th I think it has a lot to do with the fact that you are, you are working when other people are, are recreating Yeah, when other people are taking, you know, you go into a, you, we, most of us eat dinner between somewhere between five thirty and nine o'clock in the evening. And chefs are always working in that time frame, which means that to eat in a, on a semi normal schedule, you're, you know, you're, shoveling food out of a court container at 3.30 in the afternoon. Right. So, and I, I, I something that I've realized over the years is that I think I spent the majority of, the entirety of my 20s and the majority of my 30s never hungry, but never not hungry. So I was in a constant state of seeking satiety, but never really experiencing it. Yeah. And it just, it ends up really messing with, you know, I, I, um, I would go into dinner service, shoveling down some food, work all through dinner service, have to taste food through the entire dinner service, finish work at midnight or, or 11.30 midnight, and then I'd be hungry. And the only options were, you know, last thing I want to do is go home and cook myself a meal. So I'd have to grab whatever was readily available. And the, the problem with the world that we live in is that the calories that are most easily accessible are always nutrient deficient and calorically heavy. Yeah. So you're, you're grabbing things that are crispy, crunchy, salty, sweet, and they do provide you with a modicum of, of satisfaction and, and pleasure. But over time, it's like death by paper cuts. You know, you're literally yeah. just eroding your health. My wife was saying today she, she eats these um, high-protein chips. Mm -hmm. and, and she was like, I want to I trade these for something real, but I want to have the same kind of macro thing. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, it's just it's not this doesn't exist in real food. This yeah. is like somebody had to figure out how to make something crunchy and uh, not super high fat, not mm -hmm. super high carb, but there's too much sodium, which we could get into, but like yeah. a little bit's fine. And like, this is not like, you can't do that to chicken breast. You know, you could maybe mm -hmm. do it to chicken skin, right? but that's super high fat then, you know? And, and it is true that we, we, we gravitate towards these things and something you were saying earlier, which I think I, I think is so profound. Um, and then we could just get into like the idea of how it breaks down, but like the idea of a kid, um, 
being acknowledged for doing something good mm-hmm. by cooking. I relate to that. I actually think uh, much the way like a comedian tells a joke and people laugh, mm-hmm. they get that reaction. Right. It's an art form. Uh, I think food is is and can be the same. Uh, you create something, somebody experiences it, hopefully they enjoy it, they connect with it in some way. I could think of like a Big Mac as being super delicious. Mm-hmm. I do think it's super yeah. delicious. Yeah, well, it's engineered to be delicious. Yeah. But then once it becomes um, so prevalent, like there's also something that I, f- I find like the value of things in scarcity, which is just like an ep- economic principle. Mm-hmm. There's no scarcity to a Big Mac. No. It, it's, it's designed to get you. Yeah. And then once it's got you, it's everywhere. This is a, mm-hmm. this is a, just a weird place to find ourselves in when when we're at all thinking about health or like physical goals that we can escape from this need to immediately yeah. be gratified by food. It's really it's kind of counter evolutionary because we we evolved to to eat food when it was present, and and that's the reason. I mean that's why we crave sugar. You know, sugar is a, an indicator one that a plant or a fruit or a berry is not toxic. It's not poisonous. But we also know that by eating sugar, we're going to put on fat, which is going to allow us to withstand periods of time without food. Right. So we, we're, we're programmed to anticipate scarcity. And now we're obviously in a constant state of preparing for, for a scarcity that never happens yeah. because all of the, you know, the Big Mac is omnipresent. Um, and and there's, there's something else you touched on that I think is interesting is that there's such an, an emotional component to food. So there's an evolutionary component to food that dictates why we like the foods we like. And then there's an emotional component to it as well in that I think as we all kind of grow up craving as children, we crave the, uh, you, you know, the attention and love and, and, and unconditional love from our parents. And if we don't get that, we start to look for other places to fill that in. So whether there's some sort of early childhood trauma, I mean, we, just being human is traumatic. Childbirth is traumatic. Right. Early adolescence is traumatic, all those things. And so we look for ways to backfill that trauma and food becomes a really uh, a low hanging fruit for a lot of us to, to grab onto. It is. It is because it's I can't rationalize a lot of it, but there's a. There's a compulsion to have some sensation that even as I'm going, like, I'm not going to Carl's Jr. Right. And then I'm like, find myself on the street. I'm at Carl's Jr. Yeah. And then I'm like, I'm not. And then it's like, well, if the drive-thru's closed, I'm not going to go inside. And then you're just, I'm making all these fucking deals with myself to the point where I've got my face in the bag and I'm telling Mm -hmm. myself I'm not going to eat it. And then it's like been eaten. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened? You know? Yeah. In those moments, there's also this feeling of of relief as Mm -hmm. it's happening, you know, as I'm getting closer and closer and then in the experience itself. And then immediately after there's just a wash of regret. Yeah. And and then even sick uh, desires for like cultivating bulimia are Mm -hmm. thoughts that happen. I never did that. But um, I totally I totally was envious of people who could, you know, I I remember a, a friend of mine. Um, who was was uh, heavily addicted to drugs and coming off them and seeing him binge on ice cream and pizza and like 
sugar and all this stuff. And there's obviously there's a lot of research now that shows that the same neuropathways that are affected by by opioids are also affected by sugar. And there's that dopamine response, that sense of like you get a hit, and, and that's it. It's not surprising that that we end up craving it. But I think part of the I mentioned an antagonistic relationship with food. I think part of the issue that ends up happening, and, and we're we're bombarded in every in every direction, with this idea that um, there's obligation associated to food. So we we feel like we should eat these foods that we don't like, right. and we shouldn't eat these foods that we do like. And so we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. We're totally fucked. You end up eating the foods that you, quote unquote, shouldn't eat, but you do like. Right. So then you feel remorse, regret. You feel terrible about yourself. You have no, you think, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I have no, uh, I've got no uh, um, willpower. I can't control myself. And then you, if you do eat the foods that theoretically should be eating, you're like, I really, there's no pleasure in this. I don't want to be eating. It's penance. And so you're stripping out the one thing that, that, I, well, there's many things that differentiate humans from other animals, but I think one of the things, the key things that differentiates us from other animals is that food is pleasurable. Right. We really take pleasure and joy in food. We, we've developed a very complex palate, and, uh, and, and we eat a very diverse and complex diet, and there's a reason that we do that because we crave that pleasure and joy that comes from food. Yeah. And when you pound it down with, with obligation – which is, you know, it's we're, we have we have all of these societal structures around us that are reinforced. I mean, for you and I, it's bad enough, but think about what it's like for girls, young girls growing up. It's even more challenging. Yeah, I have four daughters, and um, you know, I, I've just gotten to the point where I look at little girls who have body positivity, and I just say, yes, yes, please, just yep. be positive, because it's not worth it. I don't yeah. think to to have the shame. It, it's like. We either figure out a way to to beat all these traps that we've built for ourselves, and I think a lot of them come from a good place of like people historically have starved to death a lot. Like mm-hmm. famine is not not a joke; it fucking kills mm-hmm. people. Um, and then, like, let's make sure we know how to store food. Let's make sure we know how to produce food at at, at an amount that nobody's going to be hungry and all of this. And then we wake up, and it's like, well, you can. Buy everything at the gas station yeah. now, you know, you, literally you, like you don't have to get out of your car like you're not at any risk of overexerting yourself ever. Number one and number two, unless you want to mm-hmm. really. And and number two, like you can always have a protection of fat. Yeah, like, you, yeah you could be completely malnourished. Yeah, and that's right. The, that's the other part of it that, you know, we, we live in a country where. I don't know what the latest stats are, but I think it's like 33% of, of young adults are, are morbidly obese, yet malnourished. Right. There are no micronutrients yeah. in anything. Yeah. Okay, so so you come, because I do, I am excited to talk to you about, I think the most important thing that, 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 that we could talk about really is the should not and should, yeah. and, and how you figure out um, the should that is right for you. Mm-hmm. Um in a way that like you're going to be happy with it. Yeah. You're not, you know, self flagellating, you know, or something like this. It's like, you know, if, if we have to eat, it shouldn't be upsetting, right? right. It shouldn't be awful. Um, but how did you, what changed? Were you just not feeling well? I mean, listen, it's, it's even today it's a struggle for me every day. So I don't think that, I think we, it's, it's, it's important to recognize that for everyone, 
having a good relationship with food can be an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, but for for me, I my body just started to deteriorate, and I got really sick, and I um, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I was put on a ton of meds, and I kind of accepted. Um, I mean, when when the last time I saw you, I was you you didn't know this, but I was super sick and very heavily medicated, right. and uh, that went on for several more years, and I got to the point where I um, realized if I didn't make some changes, that I wasn't going to be around. I was, um, you know, I'm I was sixty five pounds overweight. Um, I was uh, in and out of the hospital all the time, and I was lucky to meet a doctor that practices functional medicine and he completely just blew my mind. I didn't, and he, he said what actually my grandmother had been saying for years, which is the solutions right in front of you. You know how to cook, you know about food. Food is literally going to be your pathway out of this hell that you're living right now. Wow. And it took me, you know, having a near death experience and literally just thinking I wasn't going to make it to see 40 to make a complete change. Um, but the thing that I think is really important is that I didn't I didn't do it on my own. I had I was able to kind of create a team around me. I had a good doctor, my family, my my friends, my colleagues. Everybody kind of jumped in and realized that they had to help me out. Um, and something that I found, and and I know that you know this too, is that we often think about illness as being contagious, but health is even more contagious. There's like this positive contagion of health that when you start making really good decisions and people start to see how it's improving your life. Then the people that are around you are like, well, I want a little bit of that good juju and they start making good decisions or you see what someone else is doing. And, and I think that is one of the really great positive um, aspects of social media because it becomes much easier to amplify those messages. And there, there are plenty of really shitty and horrible things about social media. But sure. if there is one good that I think that can, that we can mine from it, it's that there is the opportunity to share, share positive stories and, uh, and I think sh sharing stories is, is one of the most powerful elements. I started to learn about other people who had autoimmune disease, who had been able to change that through lifestyle changes, dietary changes. And I, I looked at these people as kind of as, as way markers. This is, okay, I want to go in that direction. What is Terry Walls doing? Let me read about how she's overcoming MS through, through the Walls protocol. What, what works there? And I would start to pick out and and then see all of the elements of food through the lens of a chef. How can I, okay, I understand what it means to be low carbohydrate and to uh, to eat prebiotic foods. Great. How can I take that and make it taste really good? Yeah. And that was, you know, using using the skill set that I have to try to, to to bring that into into my landscape. It, it it is so wild too because like in fairness I don't ever think of vegan food as tasty mm -hmm. unless you go to this fast food place Veggie Grill yeah. and then it's it's junk food it's no mm -hmm. better I think it's got just as much fat just right. as much sugar as anything else and it's like well what's the point in this I if I'm gonna be eat vegan like I want it to be healthy right and then I don't think about it and then I had my wife one night. Um, was uh also i think she was fully doing walls protocol mm -hmm. and she uh and she was like here's what i want i want a uh fettuccine uh pesto and i was like okay that's got cheese in it and she was like i can't have cheese and so we just fucked around and and tried different things and and the the pasta was like a cone jack pasta or something mm -hmm. like this mm -hmm. uh and and we used um 
a few cashews to add a creaminess to the pesto and mm -hmm. it was delicious and like learning from i watch what you cook on mm -hmm. social media and every time i'm like i'm gonna fucking I'm gonna use that, that. Yeah, yeah because exactly. it's it, it's like oh this ticks all those boxes yeah. and it looks delicious well i mean you, if you think about the term that we all are kind of craving is comfort food but i can tell from my own experience tell you from my own experience that almost every comfort food dish out there makes me feel pretty uncomfortable so like i i am on a mission to try to figure out how can we take things that tick all those boxes that hit the cravings that give you the crunch the the sweetness the the, the acidity the saltiness everything that you want but does it in a way that is also good for your body so at the end of the day you feel you you don't feel terrible eating it yeah and that's that is i mean that's that's obviously a challenge because as i said it's i mean for me sea salt and salt and vinegar potato chips are are incredibly good and i can take down a whole a whole bag of them and i mean i, I recently I, I discovered salt and vinegar pistachios and i was like equally good and i can take down a whole bag of these too so it's not necessarily the right thing to be doing right i think the the hard part is um is uh, have you ever heard this expression that a groove is a lot like a rut Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's that's that's the thing that 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 I always try to remind myself out in. And when I get into a good groove, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I don't drink alcohol right now. Sometimes I do drink alcohol, but for right now, you know, I haven't I haven't been drinking alcohol for the past 6 weeks. And the first couple of days, I was like, "Oh, I really could use a drink. I had a hard day, super exhausted, I want to drink." Second day, third day, like staring at this bottle of rosé in the fridge is that just screaming my name. I really want it. And then by like day five, something happened where suddenly I was in a new groove and now it's, it doesn't even occur to me. And I'm not, it's not that I'm equating the sensation of not drinking with feeling better the next day. I'm not having that. I actually only have that. I only have that realization when I do like, all right, now I'm gonna have a, gl a glass of wine or if it's a quote unquote cheat day, I'm having a cheat meal. And then the next day you feel like shit. Yeah. And you're like, was that really worth it? Not really. I've gotten to the point where, and I've, I don't want to cut myself off from anything. I right. want, I want to have stuff that I want in moderation, but I really, uh, the last few times that I've gone, like the, the idea of pizza occurs to mm -hmm. me. I then, th I then just go like, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to do it. You know, because it's like it just becomes not worth it. Um, yeah, I did. I did. I was recently in Texas and my aunt lives there and she made a spaghetti dinner and I ate her spaghetti dinner and it was phenomenal. And I didn't I was a little puffy the next day but and definitely felt it. But I didn't feel like yeah. I've I've poisoned myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that, which was nice. Um, But, yeah, it does become. I think with some distance. Yeah. It becomes easier and easier. I, I didn't couldn't recognize these things in the beginning. All I had was this overwhelming feeling of needing the the sensation of of consuming it, whatever it was. And this is kind of the same with drugs and alcohol. Like, um, but with some distance, mm -hmm. I can look at it differently. I have altitude from it and yeah. I can go like it's. I don't think it it becomes not worth it at some point. Well, I suspect also when your baseline is shitty that you don't necessarily feel and, and this is something I went through like I didn't my baseline was shitty and so I would have a green juice or try to take gluten out and dairy out and like I don't feel any better. Right. So this clearly doesn't work. 
Yeah. Um, without really understanding that, as I said before, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's also health by a thousand choices. So if you're if you're making one choice and then expecting that you're going to have this miraculous uh, turnaround because of one good choice, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. But eventually, with with a, the 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 um, the aggregate of all these small good positive decisions, taking you in the right direction, keeping you in that groove and out of the rut, you will start to, or at least in my experience, and I, I think it's true for most people, you start to feel you know marginal gains at first, and then significant gains, and then when you have a baseline, as you said, you're looking at it from thirty thousand feet, you have a sense of what it means to feel good in your in in this meat vessel you're in, you know, in your meat suit, and and suddenly, and then you do have you you have a spaghetti dinner at your at your aunt's house, and you can enjoy the the pleasure and the enjoyment of having that and this and and what's special about having that with your with your aunt. Um, and the next day, you can recognize that you feel a little off, yeah, but you haven't derailed yourself. And I think that's the hard part is that I know in my own experience when I've like done really well with food and then suddenly I'm I'm you know I'm like oh I have a cheat day and then another day and suddenly it turns into a cheat week and then suddenly I'm like oh I'm not doing so well <laughs> right. but it's it's a it can be a slippery slope so it's really good to have that um for me it's good to like okay I fucked up it wasn't a great meal uh it's not the end of the world it hasn't derailed anything doesn't mean that I'm not you know that I'm a bad person or that I'm like off my off my rhythm Let's just get back on the horse and get and keep keep you know keep our nose in the right direction and keep moving forward. Yeah, I, I think along with that, that the, I think there's um, some confusion happens, and maybe not for anybody else. Maybe it was just for me, but mm -hmm. but with with my goals versus what the capabilities of something are. So for me, weight loss was only my goal mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't even the idea of long term it was just like if I, I i felt or i thought that all it took was me losing weight and then i would be fine okay this is total garbage um but i tried anti-inflammatory things mm -hmm. and like the walls protocol which i think is radical and has had mm -hmm. huge benefits for my wife meanwhile my wife doesn't have the goal of weight loss but simply has some autoimmune uh, markers in her mm -hmm. blood, which make her feel shitty and she needs to handle them that way. And she does, she handles them through nutrition. But like when I think about stuff like going keto or doing the walls protocol mm -hmm. or excising lectins from your diet or mm -hmm. whatever it is, I think those can work for weight loss. Those can work to uh, reduce inflammation. Mm -hmm. Those can work to reduce autoimmune, but like, if you're not really figuring out what you're doing, specifically fine-tuning it, you can kind of get lost in like, well, no, I did the walls protocol just for weight loss, but I was eating, you know, an excessive amount of calories because right. I don't think she gets real specific in that. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you remove these foods, it's going to help because it's going to alleviate these symptoms, yeah. which aren't necessarily designed around being you know, overweight yeah, weight loss yeah 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 i mean that happens with keto all the time you know people see keto as this as this like um this panacea for for everything right and i look at keto as a very specific really good tool um you know it's been around for over 120 years to treat neurological neurologic inflammation so it's great for it's been used for treating epilepsy for for spectrum disorder like all sorts of issues around and i think for people that 
with Alzheimer's, keto can be really can be really good. But I also look at it, and obviously for for acute weight loss, it can be great. Sure. But it but it's you have to be, and I'm and you've been through this. You got to be so dialed in on your macros because it's really easy to eat too much protein, eat too many calories, and suddenly you're you're at, you're at a caloric surplus, and you're not even in ketosis because you kicked yourself out of ketosis from too much protein. So it's it, the all of these. It kind of comes back to this whole idea that that there isn't a one size fits all for anyone for anything. Yeah. Um, and inflammation is a component. There's 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 another thing that that I don't think it's talked about enough, which is the maybe because we're really um, we like to separate the head from the body, like m- mental well-being and physical well-being are totally different and throw in like fucking spiritual well-being and then it's really complex. But I the number of times that I've had people come to me and say, uh, you know, I can't eat gluten. I'm totally gluten intolerant. Dairy really fucks with me. But I was on vacation in Italy and I could eat the pasta and I had this amazing burrata <laughs> and all of a sudden yes. it must be because everything here is GMO and they must do different ingredients. And, you know, my response is always maybe or maybe it's that. You're on vacation in Italy, and you're not. You don't have all the same daily stressors that you have in your life here. Um, you you have, you're creating memories, so there's nostalgia as well that's built into it. And one of the things that we we've learned more than anything is that while almost everything in life depreciates, most memories actually appreciate over time. Yeah. So like your 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 honeymoon might have been complete hell, but two years later, you're like that was pretty good, and then five years later, you're like that was amazing, and, it, and ten years later, you're like we had the best time on our honeymoon. No, they sort of it appreciates over time, but with with like the idea of, of being in on vacation in Italy, and it could be that yeah, there there probably is difference between the way wheat is grown, but most most wheat in Italy is actually bought in the U.S., so chances are it probably is the same wheat, and chances are it probably is GMO. Um, I know that it was uh, startling to me a few years ago um, that they had a section for non GMO mm-hmm. foods in France. Yep. And me and my wife were like, no, this is France. Everything's non GMO, but that's yeah. not true. No, no. They passed the European union passed GMO labeling laws in, I think like 2008 or 2006, yeah. you know, way before we've, I mean, we don't do it here now, obviously Vermont, I think is the only state that, that really? has GMO labeling laws. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the amount of food, Think about it. The U.S. is a huge exporter of of foodstuffs, so we we have a lot of dairy, we have a lot of a lot of meat, a lot of a lot of um, of wheat that all gets exported in corn, and I, so I don't think I think that there's there's an emotional component to it that when I mean we know that cortisol is is a, an inflammatory marker and drives inflammation. And if you think about your immune system, we, I, I think we often think of the immune system as just being this thing that keeps us from getting sick or getting better when we are sick. But it, I, I think of it as like a, a, a finite set of resources, and it's fighting everything, including stress. And so if you're in a stressed environment where you, you're, you're using up your resources to deal with chronic stress, you are less prepared to deal with the other things that are coming at you, including processing shitty food. Yeah. And suddenly you're on vacation. You're in a great place. You know what? You might have more resources to be able to be. You're you're more relaxed. You're you're in a, in a better space. So there's there is an emotional component to. Again, it goes back to that emotional component with food, nostalgia, and 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 it's something that can impact how we how we process foods. Yeah, I've this has been the biggest um, hurdle for me, and mm-hmm. and the biggest thing to to really kind of sink my teeth into and try to 
parcel out analytically and then mm-hmm. put into action in the world, um, which is sometimes much easier to think something through than to actually ex- live with it. Um, but like I can overeat keto. Yeah, I, I can. I did. And and then when I look at a, a real big keto advocate who says, like, all we need is for the country to go keto and the obesity epidemic will end. I mm-hmm. go like, do you know me who can eat, you know, 40 ounces of Wagyu beef for dinner and uh, lobster tails and butter and, and do shots of olive oil while my wife is wine tasting? Like mm-hmm. I exist and yeah. people like me exist and we can overeat fat. We can. Um, this is not going to cure the obesity epidemic. I'm sorry. Um, it's just not. But if I am conscious of what I'm eating and eating in keto, I can lose weight. Mm-hmm. And and but it, But it's not just that I stopped eating carbohydrates, that I limited my protein, that I increased my fat. That wasn't a, a cure-all for right. me being obese. Um so I, I do think it takes a little nuance. And I've also gone from keto, got on a plane, landed in Europe, ate fucking bread and everything I wanted, did not restrict at all for mm-hmm. three weeks, multiple times and come home having not gained weight. And then looked and gone like, oh, well, we were walking 10 miles a day. Right. This has something to do with it. I don't do that here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a big part of like, we, we, you know, we, we tend to idolize, idealize things like the Mediterranean diet. And if you actually break it down and you look at it, there's, I lived in Spain for seven years. There's, there's a lot of unhealthy food. Right. Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting is the, the context, not necessarily the content, but the context. In Spain, they eat one big meal at 2.30 in the afternoon and everyone goes for a walk as a family after eating that meal <laughs> and then they take a nap and then they go back to work maybe for a couple of hours and then they might have like a really light dinner. So they're not, they're eating very little food before sleep, which is one point that is very different from Americans and they're physically active. They're moving around. It's that low steady state I mean, they're not going out and doing hit workouts after, you know, they're right. not, they're not like doing powerlifting hit, hit workouts. Yeah. They're literally just low steady state walking. Um, and I think, and then the other component, which is interesting because we, again, we like to cherry pick elements. The number of times that I've been on, you know, interviews or TV shows where they've said, oh yeah, you know, so apparently in the, the, the blue zones, they're, they're, they eat a lot of rosemary and anchovies. And so can you create some recipes that have rosemary and anchovies in it? And you can't cherry pick one element of like what exists in the blue zone. If you look at the blue zones, almost all of them have one thing in common, which is they drink alcohol, Right. which is like, how so we, we all should drink. We should all drink. Yeah. yeah. And you see cherry pick that and say, we should all drink. But the thing about that is that, you know, what's the value? Is it, is it red wine is really high in antioxidants? That's total bullshit. That's not the amount of red wine you have to drink. You'd be taxing your liver to actually benefit from it. Right. But it, I think it's that, Alcohol is really good grease for conversation. So it stimulates socialization. If you're eating and socializing at the same time, you're interacting with people. So there's there's um, there's a dopamine hit that comes from that. Obviously, it's, there's there's like all of the different uh, uh, hormones that are sparked by by inter- social engagement, interaction. And then on top of it, you're eating more slowly. Yeah. So you're much more, for lack of a better woo-woo word, mindful or present with your food, which we aren't. And that that's something that... I know that I still struggle with every day because it's very easy, particularly with packaged foods, 
to not be present with your food. Like you can just take down a whole, even if it's a bag of nuts and you think you're doing something, you know, think it's great. Well, it's actually 250 calories you just mindlessly ate. Right. That you probably weren't hungry and didn't really need. Yeah. You could have had water or you could have had water. a handful of yeah. nuts. But it's very hard, I think. And I think it's for, for some people, particularly people that have compulsive behavior, it's and and that's I think that's probably at its root. There's there's trauma behind that, but it's really difficult to reach a state of satiety. Yeah, and that's why when you have people that are saying all we got to do is put the world on keto and we'll cure the, the 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 obesity epidemic, they're they're not really touching on what what is driving. I mean, yes, there's something wrong with our f- food system sure. without a doubt, but. The, the when you start to use food as a coping mechanism, if you um, if you just switch the content of that food, you're still going to be using food as a coping mechanism. Yeah, and that's uh, that's hard. I mean, I I know I struggle with finding a place of satiety. I can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and part of it is because I really enjoy the pleasure of eating, but there's also like I think there's a there's an element of chasing that state of satiety and not feeling it. Um, and that's you know that's that's tough. I mean that's where that's where gluttony comes from. Yeah. How do you, what when you changed everything? You got mm-hmm. your team on board. You had doctors. You yeah. had your group. What what was the biggest change that you made first? And what what did that even look like? Because I, I I've eaten your food. I would not. And this was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But it was not something I would ever put in the realm of healthy right now when i see what you're cooking at least what you're sharing yeah yeah it all looks it's all very different yeah Yeah. i mean i i grew up cooking spanish food so i was cooking croquetas and paella and stuff that's like very carb heavy and a lot of dairy um, a lot of grains and i've obviously pivoted very much from that in the past 10 years um but the the biggest change and i'll go back to this thing that i talk about which is content versus context the biggest change i made was was uh was contextual it was understanding that for me to start to have an approximation of a sense of satiety, I had to break out my day. I had to become a chef that peddled hunger. Right. I had to learn how to be hungry. And I think there's um there's something interesting about that word because it's really, you know, it's a very loaded word. Um, hunger and hungry are two different things. And... Um, to to be hungry to me is to really look forward to something. And so I had to understand that being hungry meant anticipation of something really wonderful and delicious and build up to it, look forward to it. You know, it's it is 145 and I have not eaten today. Wow. And I actually I feel great. Right. And that was a big change for me, like understanding, okay, I am not gonna eat in the morning and get on the sugar roller coaster. Um I'm going to build up to a big meal in the afternoon and a light meal and dinner. And I'm going to eat that meal ideally before seven o'clock. And that was like, that was the context. And that's how things changed in terms of contextually. Like I, I, I realized, and fortunately I own my own restaurant. So I was able to turn to my chef de cuisine at seven, six thirty o'clock, seven o'clock and say, all right, Anoop, you've got this. I'm stepping out. I'm going downstairs to eat, eat dinner. And then one of the guys would make me, you know, a salad with a piece of fish or something like that. And I'd go down to the office, I'd sit, I'd eat my dinner, and then I'd come back up to the kitchen and jump back into dinner service. Um, if I didn't do that, then I would start, I would like, by 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, I'd need to eat again. Yeah. 
And so I wasn't I just breaking it out. So for me, it wasn't having three meals a day because I'm more of a one and a half meal a day kind of guy or a, or a two meal a day kind of guy. Um, but it was just making sure that I was having those those um, those points on a compass. And and then, you know, from there, I started to tweak what it was I was eating. But the first thing was literally just to make sure that I was eating. Um, and I I realized you're know, living in Spain um, when I was living in Spain, the, the snack food industry is a very new thing in Spain. Like people did not snack. And uh, I, I was there in, in, I spent my senior year in high school in Spain. That was my first sort of experience there. And I remember I would go out with my, my friends and we'd, we'd go to a bar because when you're 18, you could drink and you go to bars. And um, there'd be like four of us sitting around a table and one person would get up. It's a very social, like one person buys the drinks at one bar, then the next person buys the drinks. The, like one person buys for the whole table. Right. And I remember my, my, um, one of my buddies, his name was Fabio, he got up and he came back to the table with a big bag of potato chips. And he opened the potato chips differently than we did in the U.S. He took the bag of potato chips and he opened the whole bag, split it open so it became like a tablecloth, put it in the middle of the table, and then we all ate it. And there was this social element that was really interesting. But that was like one of the that, – that's how if we were going to snack, like everybody kind of snacked together. But generally speaking, speaking, the idea of snacking between meals didn't exist. Like You know, you wouldn't eat until 2.30 in the afternoon. And then you ate nothing before between breakfast and 2.30 in the afternoon. And then you ate nothing between 2.30 in the afternoon and a light dinner at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Yeah. So there was there is no snacking, and I think that's where we tend to get really in trouble in the U.S. because we are we are bombarded with food on the go. Uh, again, in Spain, like the idea of getting a coffee to go didn't exist. Even to this day, it's kind of hard to get a coffee to go in Europe. Yeah, um, because that notion is really odd. You no, know, coffee is when you sit down, you actually are present with the person that you're having coffee with. And if it, if you need something quick, you get an espresso. Exactly. You drink it. It's a sip or two, and then you're and done. And then you're gone. Yeah. Right. But the idea you wouldn't take it and then get in your car and put it in your in your you know in your cup holder in your car and then go through a drive through and get like a snack that you'd also eat in the car. Dude, Just when the it. first uh, my my wife lived in France um, when she was fifteen mm-hmm. for a while, and uh, my little kids speak fluent French, and 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 we've always had family in France and go there a lot and when the first Starbucks opened it felt to me like there was a little bit of death in Paris like it was just like no this isn't what you guys do you don't do this shit and it's funny because when it when that first happened and I've seen it happen in Spain and in in the UK as well where you know that the first one happens and there's this resistance like no the Americans I can't believe this they're exporting and then pretty quickly it's like nope Everyone loves it. They're getting their frappuccino because then they're hooked. Yeah. Oh no! Listen, trust me. On that trip, my wife said, "There's a Starbucks. I want to protest. I want to go there and protest." Yeah. And like two days later, we were at the Starbucks, and I was like, "What are we doing here?" Yeah. And she's like, "I want an iced coffee." Yeah. You know, you and a giant came to protest American iced coffee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, "Okay, now we're just going to Starbucks in France, and part yeah. of me has died as well as Paris." Yeah. yeah. Um, I I. You know, in this day and age, I think so much is is kind of um, bastardized or misrepresented in in pop culture with postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And I think that any of these things, you could look at aspects of them and go like, that makes sense to me. And I really like what I think Leotard said, um, that the foundation of postmodernism is incredulity towards meta narratives. And so when well, I just... You just lost me. <laughs> it's just the idea of like... 
all this stuff that we assume is the way it is, yeah. like three meals a day. Yeah. The food pyramid. Yep. We just assume that this is how you live. And so this is how you live. And then trying to alter it at all. It's, it's like, well, no, but we're supposed to have three meals a day. Yeah. And I think that anything and, 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 you know, you could have the, the meta narrative of, of, of keto, you yeah. know, who, who you have just a, it's a movement of people that believe that you, we shouldn't be, that we're allergic to mm -hmm. carbohydrates or something like this. Yeah. And it's like, that's not some objective, absolute truth. This is just some, some structure that we've taken on three yeah. meals a day is a structure we've taken on. Starbucks is a structure. You don't yeah. have to go to Starbucks. You know what I mean? You, you don't have to, you don't have to do any of this shit. You can eat a meal and a half a day yep. and be fine. And you can also eat four meals in one day and no meals for the next three days too. Right. And be okay. It might be uncomfortable, but you'll be okay. Yeah. And, and by the way, another thing through like a lot of uh, personal physical experimentation and talking to people that discomfort is not forever. No. Like you can acclimate your body to n not just accepting that discomfort, but Enjoying like thriving. Yeah. yeah. Any of this, like yeah. you're a cyclist. Yeah. You go through, you feel the pain. Y suffering becomes enjoyable. Yeah. Like this, uh, it's such an odd thing to think about. Mm -hmm. But when I was cycling a lot, the first hill I ever rode up, I was like, this is a fucking nightmare. Yeah. And, a few months later, you're seeking them out. I, I yeah. just want to be going uphill. I want the steepest, mm -hmm. hardest, longest hill I can find. I want to suffer. And, and it's, it's, it doesn't mean the same thing to me anymore. So I just think yeah. any of this stuff, any of these stories we have that this is what it is because it's always been this way and it will always be this way. I, I go like, well, is that the most functional for you? Yeah. Maybe it's not. Yeah, I think there's something in that moment of suffering where you're you're acknowledging that if you survive this, you're thriving. Yeah. And so there's there is a there there's a there's a primordial desire or to overcome these challenges because you know it demonstrates that you are actually strong yeah. and the strong survive. And that I mean that meta narrative that you talked about like whether it's three meals a day or it's keto is the right answer like all of that is it, it we we really do want to outsource so much of our, you know, people just, I, the number of times I have people say, just tell me what to eat. I don't yeah. want to eat. Just tell me what to eat. Me I don't too. And I don't want to do it. No, exactly. I mean, I, because the, 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 the problem with that is that in, invariably they're going to fail be, because we all kind of have to develop our own, our own narrative and our own relationship with food. We've got to figure out what works, but in order to do that, you have to really, you got to drill down and develop a really innate relationship with yourself. Yeah. And as you relate to this, how this meat vessel is moving through the world and, and, and the foods that we put into it and how it impacts it. And if you're, if you're living life, you know, if you've got these glasses on and the lenses are foggy, you're never going to be able to actually perceive how you feel if you're on keto or how you feel if you, you know, if you just eat a ton of carbohydrates and a lot of sugar, it's all going to be muddled. Um, and, and we do, we like to outsource so much of it because it, it, it alleviates the role of responsibility that we take in, in our own well-being. We're like, okay, we're just, we're sort of like a leaf in a stream flo floating through and it's this transaction. I think of it as transactional medicine. You know, we, oh, I have a headache. Well, take a, take an Advil. 
It's and, easy. Yeah, it's easy. And I, I, my grandmother was was an incredible woman. She she very anytime I had a headache, she would look at me. She said, "Well, how many glasses of water have you drunk today?" <laughs> and it was you know it seems kind of absurd, but she she said things like, "You got to eat a peck of dirt before you die." Well. Did she really mean it? Well, actually, she probably did not knowingly. We have to fortify our microbiome by making sure that we have exposure to, to you know, there's a reason why you crave. If you've ever had a carrot that's just been pulled out of the ground and it's just been wiped off, it tastes completely different from yeah. anything else. And that will be like fortified in your mind is what the, a carrot should taste like. That'll be the gold standard of a carrot. And I think a lot of that has to do with our evolutionary understanding that that's how we should be eating a carrot. Not right. not only because that's how it tastes best, but because it's teaching us something. It's teaching us something exactly. I mean, there's a reason why they eat fermented shark in Iceland, and that you know it tastes like shit. But you know what? It's probably probably there's some value to it. You right. know, there's there there we've had this really interesting and complex relationship with with bacteria since we since since we evolved from single cell organisms. You know, and we don't really understand it. At all. Yeah. At all. But it has so much to do with how we interact with food. And um, I mean, one of the things that scares me about the world we're living in right now in COVID is that, I mean, we were talking about it before, that our interaction with bacteria is, is, is lessened because we just don't have as much social interaction and exchange. But also we're, we're sanitizing everything as much as we can, which um, I think is going to have a very negative long-term effect on our well-being. And could leave us much more at risk to 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 superbugs than than we are now. Yeah, um, it's it, it gets it gets pretty bleak. Um, I, I I say that, and then I I think back to my life prior to COVID, and I, mm -hmm. I go like I haven't been super social in a long time. Right, you know, like I wouldn't get into a mosh pit or or, and I'm trying to think of like the only time I'd have a lot of contact with other human beings, and it's like a I haven't, so it's not going to be. I don't know what effect it's going to have yeah. on my life. Kids, I think it's going to be f fucked up. For yeah, them. it's going to be really tough. I mean, yeah. but you also don't know the people that you do interact with, who they're interacting with, who they're interacting with. So obviously, like we are social creatures. Um, and we we now interact because we we interact through blue screens all day long, so there's all the, the there's the you know what is the, what does that mean like not actually having physical contact. One of the this has been um, you know a really really rough year for me. My mom died in in December. I'm so sorry. And it was and she it was a very you know she had a catastrophic accident and um, being going through the experience of of grief and not being able to grieve with my family was like was was a, a completely different level of grief and i think that there are just i mean there's so many people who are experiencing that that level of grief because they are disconnected from they don't have you know a, a zoom memorial service is not does not do justice to someone's life yeah. or you know all, so it's there there's there's so much that's coming out of this that's going to affect us um and it has been a struggle but I think it's interesting, too, how we adapt and how we have. I mean, the fact that we were able to get nearly the entire country rallying around wearing masks, you know, for, for better or for worse, the fact that we could move together. And I guess that kind of does to uh, um, who did you say it was Leonardo that said that? Leotard. Leotard. OK, yeah. so to Leotard's point that like, OK, we are kind of just 
we are just sort of lemmings and we're just waiting to be to do what we're told it, it, it i mean i listen I have so many ideas that contradict themselves and yeah. I'm, you know I'm awash in hypocrisy and everything else but I do think that what I struggle to do as much as I can is go um is there a reason that we behave in whatever way we mm -hmm. behave and and I'm not looking to like go against the grain you know I I think like I'm Chesterton talked about his fence, you know, and people come upon a fence mm -hmm. and go, I don't want a fence here. I'm just going to tear it down mm -hmm. without going like, well, why, why is there a fence here? Maybe there's a dangerous animal hiding in the right. bushes behind the fence. We don't know. Um, and so there's things like that where it's like, yeah, eat a peck of dirt. By the way, it pecks an awful lot. It is so a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of dirt. But yeah. you have the same. But before you die, that's your whole life. Right. So it's theoretically, right. yeah, it could be a lot. And, and. That's an interesting thing that has meaning that we don't even ascribe to it now yeah. when we when we hear our grandmother say it or or I have my wife, everything is cured by water. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're feeling will be cured by water. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm the guy who left to my own devices will dehydrate just because right. I won't drink a lot because I have, you know, um, ingrained within me uh from when i was morbidly obese the idea of like exertion to get up and go to the bathroom mm -hmm. was so much that i wanted to avoid that oh, so wow. i won't drink yeah. a lot of water like all of that built in um plus like getting up is more noticeable and so you're suddenly being viewed oh, yeah. more like all mm -hmm. this weird mental shit and it's just like fucking get rid of it what's functional for you mm -hmm. might not be functional for everybody and, you know, it's amazing because I think keto is uh, an alternate meta narrative for the standard. Mm -hmm. And so but it's just taken on a life of its own where it's right. like, you know, this is fucking great for people who are eating multiple loaves of bread a day and, yeah. and drinking Coca-Cola and and you know, doing lines of cocaine, of sugar, sorry, lines yeah. of cocaine, uh, lines of that sugar, different, yeah. sniffing lines of sugar, right? Like, yes, our diet had an abundance of sugar in it. Maybe it's good to get off of that to yeah. some degree. And then it goes like, but if you're eating five pounds of bacon a day and making keto brownies, mm, I don't know if you're, you know, what are your goals? Like, yeah. I just think it, it all f falls to shit when, when we, try to apply it to every everyone yeah, and the absolutism is it never works i mean yeah. it's I, I what i do like about things like keto or paleo or, is that they they do give some some pretty strict guardrails and then the but the problem is is that then you look at it, like the number of what did i see recently i saw like some snack food that was peanuts and something else and it said keto friendly or something like that right. it was like totally what absurd does that mean? Yeah, yeah what the fuck does that mean but but um uh it does apply some guardrails, and I think that that's that's good. Um, having you know whether it's doing whole thirty or it's 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 doing paleo, understanding. Okay, these are what I like about whole thirty as an example is that it gives you thirty days, so it's very much like okay, I can do this. This is manageable. Here's some guardrails. This is in. This is out. But within that, I I, I think 
people start to let, again, they start to try to hunt and pack and say, okay, well, I could make this, I can make whole 30 brownies that are, and, it, and, and then you're kind of moving away from the whole point of this, which is to really experience what it's like to have a new way of eating. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately when you, when you're dealing with, with, um, severe, you know, morbid obesity, you do, the caloric intake really does matter. Yeah. It really, really does matter. Um, but again, it's, 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 it's an, it's a, it's a fantasy I clung to forever, which was, I can eat as much bacon and avocado as I want. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it's not true at the end of the day, which is heartbreaking, but it it is like if you're eating 10,000 calories a day and burning five, even if you were losing glycogen for the first five days, you're not going to lose fat. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's hard though because then it goes back to that whole idea of outsourcing your responsibility. And I think for me, when I, when I was sick, that was a big part of my whole thing. Is I just kind of let that like, why am I sick? I go to the doctor, take the medication I'm supposed to take, and I'm still sick. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And when I did, when I started working with with Dr. Frank Lipman, who practices functional medicine, he was constantly saying, "You got to do the work. It's going to be on you. I'm going to be here with you, but it's all about you. The choices you make are going to impact you." And when I started to see positive changes because of the choices that I was making, just like when you like made it up that hill and then you started to look forward to that suffering, like, yeah, because you knew that suffering was going to make you stronger. So it made you crave that suffering. When I started to see positive changes from the choices I was making around food, then I went, I doubled down. And then it was like, okay, this works, do more of this. This works, do more of this. And it's funny because now I'm in a place in my life where if I I know exactly how to eat for me to feel good, and if I deviate from that, I feel pretty bad pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and it's a good reminder to me that I mean it's it actually like it took me a long time to get to the point where I I could be self-diagnostic like that. Um, and I think had I not gone through that whole experience, I it, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, and I, the problem I, most folks have with food is that they don't ever really reach a point where they can be self-diagnostic and they can understand there's there's a correlation between how I feel and what what I'm eating. Yeah, I I, th- I think um, I think that's the best place to be too. I, I and 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 again, not speaking for everyone, but but I've had this experience where the minute that you can get almost immediate feedback mm-hmm. like that, that's going to be the best way to go. Like, cause the scale can haunt you. All these things can haunt you. And the ideas of like, this is going to make me fat, you know? And, and, and like, but once you get, you can get to a place where it's just like, what am I doing with my body? What do I want to do with my mm-hmm. body? And how does my body feel doing it? Am I, Am I more tired this week? Okay, have I been eating differently? Can I mm-hmm. can I look at it that way? And then how do I enjoy my food? Because like like you said whole 30 brownies to me this is sacrilege mm-hmm. to to the to the fundamental uh reason to do whole 30 and right. like almost every I know there are diet products and diets that offer products but for the most part, they do talk about healthy, like uh, whole, nutritious foods. Like, uh, I doubt when they were 
first writing the book on keto or like when Atkins first came out, which was pretty close to keto. Yeah, it's pretty much keto. Yeah. They weren't doing, there was no keto ice cream no. and they never envisioned that, you, you know? Um, and not to say that like keto ice cream's bad, but you can fucking overdo it on sure. keto ice cream. I've done it. I've yeah. eaten a whole pint of Halo Top before. Yeah. It felt terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, it, it's, you're, you're right. Like there's, part of that is um, is stripping out the emotional component of an understanding that like you can't just have a swap. Right. Um, but that said, I do think on the other side of things, like you can actually make, for instance, the best brownies I've ever had are dark chocolate brownies that are, are um, virtually sugar-free and have olive oil in them and are, you know, really, really delicious. Is that like... Is that a keto swap? No, that's just a better brownie. Right, and and so I think that there there are so many things. We part of part of the biggest problem I see with 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 prepared foods is that we are so the well the human body is good at doing whatever you ask it to do. So if you ask it to sit in a chair and eat brownies all the time, it gets really good at sitting in a chair and eating brownies all the time. And um and those brownies just like anything else, like you become pretty uh, neutralized to the sugar in those brownies and you have to start putting more and more sugar into it, which is why sugar is in everything we eat now because we are so incredibly desensitized to sugar. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. But when you take that out, and that's, I mean, that was a big thing for me was taking sugar out. When I took sugar out, I realized just... Food tasted more vibrant because I was more aware of the 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 um, nuanced flavors of different foods, um, but then I and I became hyper aware of the places that sugar existed naturally, whether it was in a carrot or it was in a beet or you know onions when they're cooked down, you name it. But um, on top of that, then I started to taste the sugar in all of the pre prepared foods, and it was cloyingly sweet to the point where. It feels like my teeth are melting yeah. and and that's when you know I, I realized like you can actually you can make this olive oil chocolate chip cookie that's absolutely amazing it still has flour in it still has sugar in it it still has chocolate in it but it doesn't have you know it has like four grams of sugar not 28 grams of sugar in it and it's got healthy fat in there that helps you metabolize that sugar so it's not hitting you in the same way. Right. Um, and fiber. And fiber. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you, if you want to make it even better, then you can add something. You can add some nuts into it. You can add walnuts into it. You can add some you know, oats into it, whatever it might be, to, to add a little bit more fiber to slow down that uptake. So I think there is – there's like there's, – there's, there's the swap, which is the um, – Melissa Urban calls it sex with your clothes on, you know. <laughs> And, and then there's there's like the cleaned up version, and I I am much more in favor of the you know have the cleaned up version in moderation, avoid the swap yeah because the swap just is is plugging into that emotional reaction to the food yeah and I also haven't seen long term success broadly with the swap right it, it's a lot of people who who are who like me are almost beginning with disappointment in themselves mm -hmm. and then just compounding it. And like, what the fuck is, what's the purpose of that? Where are we getting if we're yeah. just going to feel like worthless at the end of it? It's, yeah. uh, to me, um, it's a no brainer to stay away from the swap. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it, it, and it, it goes back to that issue of obligation. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this cause it's bad for me. So then suddenly you're, what you're doing is like, Oh, now I can have this cause 
I shouldn't be having it, but uh, it's not bad for me anymore. But in reality, you know, as you know, and I know, you go in there and you eat a whole, two whole gluten-free pizzas and, you know, it's it's just as bad as you might as well just eat the real pizza because yeah. you're you're not even getting like the the emotional enjoyment of, of eating the pizza which has some value i spent um time eating gluten-free pizzas and, mm-hmm. and like it was my mission to try every gluten-free pizza right. and cut to today if i was going to have a cheat meal and get pizza it would be gluten-free because i just became accustomed to eating right. that pizza you know and so and I, I even go like what the fuck are you doing this yeah. is a cheat meal you don't feel any better the next day you still feel like shit right. why are you doing this yeah yeah it's amazing i i, w- I want to ask you have you do you how long did it take you or d- have you ever gotten to a place where you feel really good in your body because i think it's something that everyone struggles with yeah it's a. Uh, it's a real weird thing because there are moments where I feel good in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can be walking up a hill and notice that I'm not sweating yet mm-hmm. and, and have a feeling of, feel, uh, oh, this is cool and I'm not struggling so much. And there will be times where like if the lighting is perfect and I'm working out and I catch the right angle, angle like, and I okay. see my trap and my shoulder mm-hmm. and I go like, hey, look at you. And then I can totally ruin that by continuing to turn and seeing another angle that I'm not happy mm-hmm. with. Um, I don't walk around feeling lousy, um, but a lot of the garbage that was with me while I was obese and I think because of that or maybe went back to trauma as a kid. I, I, I don't know. That's still there. And I just have to like recognize what it is mm-hmm. and go like, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, which I've become more and more able to do. There is never a, a moment where I feel super confident in front of other people, maybe in front of my wife, mm-hmm. maybe in front of my kids. Um, like I, I'll take my shirt off at the beach with my kids and not feel weird about totally it insecure, yeah. but if there's other people there i'll feel weird about it mm-hmm. um so i don't know i think it but it, it certainly gets less and less and less i found that that component is uh much harder to defeat even than my relationship with food mm-hmm. um which over the last couple of years I feel really good about now. Like I, I enjoy the food I eat. Mm-hmm. I, I know how I'm going to feel generally. I even have gotten adept at like, Oh, I'm eating too much cabbage. I'm going to throw something green in there. And uh-huh. I actually feel a little bit different. Uh, like I, I realize when I've gotten onto the hamster wheel for too long of eating the same stuff. And it's like, I need some other vegetables and I do feel better, which suddenly makes me think like, how good would I feel if I took vitamins? I don't know. I yeah. feel like a superman because I just never you don't, take You don't them. take supplements? No. Not um, even vitamin D? No. I don't take anything. Mm-hmm. I, I was told my vitamin D levels were fine. And I try to go outside at least once a day for a half no, an hour. It's because you don't have a hat. Yeah. And you don't have any hair. I, it's, a, get... it's a solar uh, <laughs> exactly. panel on yeah. my body. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, like, the food was a lot of work. And, and I just thought that all the bullshit would kind of go away mm-hmm. with that. And it hasn't. But no. but it, it it's, it's certainly easier, you know. Yeah. It's weird how we all – I think we all uh, – 
and I think women probably have to struggle with this more than we do, but we all find like that one aspect of of our appearance that we can't stand. Yeah. And we expect that the rest of the world is only seeing that. Yeah. And and they're not seeing like they're not seeing the Ethan that is that has accomplished so much. They're seeing like you, you think that all they're seeing is they're remembering you and, and they're they're honing in but like, yeah, but look, he still looks like that or like you're we're all so incredibly critical of ourselves. It's it's I wonder I just wonder if there if there's anyone out there that really does like have a very healthy that doesn't suffer from some form of dysmorphia. I, I mean, yeah, they're called narcissists. Yeah, exactly. Right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. There are those guys. I mean, uh, I, I, I automatically assume every male model is a bit of a narcissist, right. and then I talk to some of them, and I'm like, "You're a human being. This yeah. is so wild. You yeah. have all the same <laughs> thoughts. Like, you can't believe." It. And then you know, like uh, Ashton Kutcher got fired by Tom Ford for being a, overweight, overweight, yeah. and he was real, thin, real yeah. You know, and uh, this was before he was super famous but yeah. that, that's fucking wild yeah imagine what that how does that to someone yeah. yeah 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 i know it's crazy i mean it it just shows you how we how much we fucked up our kids yeah this world that we live in it's yeah. really it's really sad this is when it's so troubling but when we swing into healthy at every size yeah and we go like geez that's not really true mm-hmm. um i don't know that that's a great message to be pushing on people however for some little girl who doesn't have to grow up with body shame fuck i'm all for it you yeah. know i can't help but just go like please more of you feel yeah. better about yourselves because i know when I'm not super hard on myself, I produce better in life. I'm better at the gym. I'm better sticking to my plan. When I'm super down on myself, it's really easy to just go, what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. Did you did you see the movie Little Miss Sunshine? Yes. I love Alan Arkin's character. is just like that. I wish that every child could have Alan Arkin as as their as their grandpa or their dad, like behind them, encouraging them because it's it it it's an interesting i mean you know healthy at any size that whole idea is unfortunately there's there's aspects of it that are that are really true and then there's the flip side of it which is it's really it's we do have a crisis that we have to deal with because it uh, as a nation we're not going to we're exporting ill health yeah. you know we're ex- exporting a culture of ill health and um you know i i was just driving back from san francisco yesterday I stopped at a gas station in in um, in Central California, and I couldn't believe how everyone everyone was obese. Everyone at the gas station, everyone inside, everyone pumping gas, everyone was was morbidly obese, and it just it breaks my heart because they there there are no options. Yeah, you know what what you have in front of you. There's no options, and it isn't like it's to to sort of. And I hate the way people look at people that are morbidly obese and think, oh, it's their fault. You know, here's this person that's, well, if they just had more willpower or if they didn't make these bad choices, you know, they're in the situation because it's their fault. And it's it's such a myopic way of looking at the world and not understanding that actually there 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 are no other choices. When you live in a world where you're only exposed to nutrient deficient, calorically full foods, you don't have any other options. Yeah, it, 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 uh, the the 
the, the dining at the gas station is something that, and I've done it so many times, and I've done long road trips too, where it's like, I now kind of won't leave until I've planned pa- out your food, yeah, and packed it really, yeah. and and I haven't done more than like one big push in a while, like multiple days mm-hmm. on the road because. I don't really know what I would do in that state, but I can get a, a, a day's worth of food in a cooler and mm-hmm. be fine and stop at the gas station just for gas yeah, and water, just kind yeah. of look and yeah. wonder at like, God, imagine if I had to eat here, yeah. what would I do? And you go in and it's like, occasionally you have a basket of bananas, right? but like really nothing else. Beef jerky. You mm-hmm. can't find even beef jerky without nitrates and sugar. Yeah, and sugar, and yeah. so much sodium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, we we are in a we're in a sticky place. Yeah. Um, I do think that one of the maybe one of the better things that has come out of the past year is that there has been a great and I hope it's I hope it's across the board and I hope it trickles down. But there's been a greater interest in cooking at home and making better quality food at home. Yeah. And with all of the sharing around content around how to cook at home, um, I think people are getting becoming better cooks, and, and that in and of itself i think if you have uh, i mean one of the challenges is that food does take it making good food does take time yeah i mean you know even even for me as a professional chef it still takes time like you have to plan for it you have to shop for it and then you have to execute and that all takes takes time resources money um but there i think there is like a greater movement around okay how can i make better tasting things how can i be a better better cook at home and I'm hoping that that will continue to amplify and trickle down throughout the entirety of the country, so we can start to see a change. And you do see. I mean, if you're in, you're if you're in Topeka, Kansas, and you go to a Costco, there's a lot of organics. There's a lot of, and it's it's relatively affordable. Um, but you know, we have, unfortunately, we live in a country where we have we spend less of our disposable income on on food than any other developed nation. We don't we devalue we devalue food. You know, we don't think of it as being that important. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it was prior to the Great Depression. We spent like 45 percent of our income on food, on food. Yeah. And and then people starved to death, like a bunch of people starved to death, which is obviously not ideal. And um, and then the subsidies came and and it's just like. It's it's a it's a double headed thing because like yeah people can't starve to death, okay let's make food in abundance, mm-hmm. um, and then it's like okay but yes I I don't think I certainly didn't know the first time I started diet and it was like just don't eat carbohydrates mm-hmm. that's your solution right it's like okay. I can figure that out yeah. in a gas station. Yeah. That I can do. I can strip beef. the hot dog yeah, out of the beef bun. Turkey, take the hot dog out of the bun. Yeah. 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 Um, but like it, it, it's, it, it, I, it, it, you're right. It is, there's nuance there that's, that's missed because mm-hmm. I didn't know how the hell f- should anybody else know, mm-hmm. you know? And, and what I know now, I would only say is really a hundred percent accurate for me. I can't say it's right. definitely the way for anybody else, but I can assume that people are are not walking around in the gas station going, "How do I how do I eat a balanced meal in here?" They're just yeah. getting food. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I when I stop in a gas station, I, I usually end up doing like three laps and I walk out with a bottle of water. Right. Because yeah. I'm like, God, I can't. No, not, nah. I look yeah. at all the ingredients. I was so elated the first time I saw a Perrier at a gas station. Uh-huh. I was like, hey, this is fancy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Moving up. Yeah. Uh, well, after, I mean, the thing, talking about the Great Depression and that, that idea of, of um, you know, these constructs and the food pyramid and all of this, I mean, you're, you're right. We came out of the Great Depression. We created jobs in food industries, which meant we needed to beef up these food industries. And here, here along comes the lobbyists, these powerful lobbyists. And suddenly you have you have agribusiness that's determining how we should be eating what our what our diet should look like right. and that's where the food you know the food pyramid comes out of that the corn and soy lobbies pushing ansel keys to to create this really you know funding his studies to create this 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 completely false narrative about how we should be eating and it's and and we we gobble it up because we all we do want we want to be told what to do so we have time to go and do everything else yeah and that's what it comes down to is that, you know, 45% of our disposable income was spent on food. Well, 75% of waking hours, someone in our family, you know, mom or grandma was spent thinking about procuring and preparing food. Yeah. For the whole for family. For the whole family. Like they were the chef. Yeah. So we, we and we now we've gone from spending a huge amount of our money and a huge amount of our time uh, around food to it being an afterthought where we're just surprised when we open the refrigerator and there's nothing to eat. Right. You know, or we there's quote unquote nothing to eat. Like to me, I open our <laughs> fr- the average refrigerator I open it, I'm like, I can make food out of this. Yeah. But it's not, uh, you're not just like opening a package and taking something out. And that's, that's where we've lost that, that, that craft of cooking, which I do think to bring it back to COVID, I think there is like a, there's a renaissance of that, of understanding the craft of cooking is really something that, we have forgotten and we need to rediscover that we can continue to pass it down to it to the next generation. Yeah. It's a great silver lining. Yeah. Seamus, thank you so much. Thanks, Ethan. This has been really, really fun. Great yeah. to see you. Thank you. Yeah. And now for the Q&A. This question comes from Mario. Hi, Mario. He says, my question is, what do you believe the pros and cons of Nutrisystem are? Is it sustainable once you come off the program? And I just want to say, I know we don't really get into like, we're not going to, you know, talk specifically or wouldn't bash any particular diet, right? But it's just like, I think there's, I, I gave you this because I think there's so many diets like a Nutrisystem, a Weight Watchers, these kinds of things. So I, I felt like, you know, the topic of this would work. Sure. I think, um, I think a lot of these things are attacking a big problem with uh, a Band-Aid. And I think that that Band-Aid is that we have arrived at some state we don't want anymore, so much so that we're willing to do something that's really difficult to change that state. And I think that if we do not address how we got into that state, that it can be a big problem for people going forward. So if if you come at this going just like, I'll put it in these terms. My experience has been, I come at it going, all I need is to lose weight. And then at some point, 
uh, I lose weight and then I gain the weight back. And I'm like, fuck, what did I do wrong? Well, I, I didn't really look at how I gained weight, how I got to this state, what I, how I needed to reorganize my life so that it wouldn't happen again. For me, that's more important than just losing weight. Can you lose weight on Nutrisystem? Yes. Is that all you're trying to do? Are you looking at restructuring your life so that that doesn't come back? That to me is a more important thing. I think Nutrisystem can work if it, you can certainly lose weight doing Nutrisystem. Uh, and then they even have a maintenance portion. I think where you get where I wound up having trouble is like, this idea of like, well, I'm not going to do this forever. And then if you're not going to do Nutrisystem maintenance forever, what are you going to do? If you haven't addressed any of the shit that got you to that place and you're just like, well, I'm pretty good now. I'm just going to go live my life again and not think about the past at all. That's where I think we, I would run into trouble with this. And so, you know, um, I think we have to all get a little bit honest with ourselves and do like, you know, moral inventories for lack of a better word on like, what was our behavior that led us to this? How do we really make a change so that that behavior doesn't creep back in that that would be my suggestion. And, and then look at real long-term things. Are there habits and behaviors that you can uh, consider throwing away for life? You know, um, and I don't think it has to be so grim. It doesn't have to be pizza. I don't think pizza is a habit. What, what's the habit associated with pizza that I would look at adjusting? It's not the thing, it's you. What are you doing that is um, allowing this state to recur, reoccur, to come back. Um, I think any diet can work. Uh, but, but I think when I say that, what I mean is the, the act of dieting is just to lose weight. The act of dieting does not address how you gained weight at all. These are two completely separate things. Um, you know, unless there is some diet where it's just like <laughs> the whole diet is just addressing how you gained weight. Maybe that exists. I don't know of that diet. Yeah. It's in, and, and how you're going to keep it up. Right. How you're going to maintain. Yeah. I don't give a shit about how I lose weight anymore. You know, I can lose weight doing anything. I can just, I can just not eat. I can eat only meat. I can, um, you know, uh, I can do Beverly Hills diet. I can drink cayenne pepper things. None of this matters. All I really care about, uh, having done this for so long is holding on to achievements. That's it. Changing my life so that this achievement achievement is a, a real and tangible part of my life. That's all I care about today. Um, Whatever diet somebody's doing, if they're having success, good. What are you going to do after? What are you going to do in a year? What are you going to do in two years? How are you going to reorganize your life so that this doesn't happen again? Because that's the heartbreak, man. You know, 
Imagine if we were um, playing some game and uh, and we got really good at playing the game and then and then and then it was like all of a sudden we woke up and we didn't know how to play it anymore. You know, like you're you're a you're a badass poker player and like every other week you're playing and you just forgot how to play and you're like wait I keep losing why am I losing now and it's like well were you really good at it what's the what's the point is the point winning a little bit of money occasionally or is the point being consistent over a long period of time these are two different things yeah 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 makes good sense yeah thank you for your question if you have a question you'd like me to discuss on this program, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>